Hello listener, welcome back to the Founders Club podcast. In this episode, my guest is Ash Moria, founder of Lean Stack, author of Running Lean and Scaling Lean, but also creator of Lean Canvas. After building products for more than a decade and throughout that time searching for a better, faster way for building successful products, Ash joined and contributed significantly to the diffusion of the lean startup movement, along with Eric Rice and Steve Blank. His books, Running Lean and Scaling Lean, had a huge impact on me alongside the Lean Canvas that is an amazing tool widely used by founders and early-stage startups around the globe. Among the many lessons he has learned as a founder and entrepreneur, there are three main that stand out, which are Listening to customer is key, but you have to know how. Life is too short to build something nobody wants. Love the problem, not your solution. This is the Founders Club podcast. If you enjoy, consider to review with a five-star an Apple podcast and subscribe to my YouTube channel, Giorgio Morochica, or simply connect with me on LinkedIn. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Founders Club podcast. My guest today is Ash Amoria. Hello, Ash. How are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing well as well. Uh, I'm so excited about this uh, podcast, as I was telling you before, because uh, let me give you a little bit of background of how I heard about you the first time. And I'll tell you why I'm excited. <laughs> so the first time when I heard about uh, you was, I was doing some research in, I think it was 2015. I was um, doing some research about startups and books to learn resources that out there that I could learn from. And I came across uh, your book, which was uh, Running Lean at the time. Uh, and I was like, uh, I found the book, I, I bought the book, I read the book, I was like, Wow, this is so much knowledge and it's so well put on paper that you just can take it and then absorb that knowledge and try to actually uh, start a company. <laughs> and I, I'm so excited because I never thought that uh, one day I'll be actually uh, have a conversation with the author of that book. And uh, I want to ask you, when did you come up with the idea of the, of the book? And uh, also, if you can give us the, what's the origin story of Lean Canvas in general? Was it before no. you published the book or was it afterwards? Yeah, so I often like to tell people that the book was never part of my plan. It was not a master plan to be an author. I was really an entrepreneur just like you. Um, and I got sucked into writing the book because I was trying to make sense of this crazy world of startups and entrepreneurship myself. So I had built many products before that, but the thing that bothered me was that every product in the beginning sounds amazing, but after a few months, sometimes a few years, you realize maybe not so amazing. That's a fallacy that every entrepreneur <laughs> falls into. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the honeymoon period. You fall in love with your idea. Exactly. I was doing the same thing. And so I, was, I did get some successes, but what bothered me the most was not knowing in the beginning which idea is good and bad. They all look good. So that was what prompted me to start looking for better ways. And so I uh, decided to write a blog and it was really more like lessons learned, what, what I was learning as I was running my own companies. 
And around that time, that's when also Eric Ries, Steve Blank, some of those folks your audience may know, um, began to talk about what became the lead startup later on. Um, but what they were saying seemed to connect with a lot of my experiences. And so I listened to them. I, I started um, commenting on their posts and did some talks in their events. Um, and that's how I got sucked in. So I was really blogging about my experiences. And I decided I would turn a lot of my learnings into some case studies. And that built up an audience. And that's how the book really came out at the end. Some of my own readers said, could you um, like, take, take some of your posts and turn it into a book? It would be a good book. So I, I said, OK. And so I kind of went through this process. And that's how the books came about. So the, 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 the funny story there is that even to this day, I get people who just discover the book and say, I wish I read your book you know, five, 10 years ago, and I still reply saying me too, because everything in that book is all the things that I learned by doing things the exact opposite way, so making all the mistakes. Um, and so the book is really a collected, you can say, wisdom from bad experience to try to maybe help the next generation of entrepreneurs not make those mistakes. They can make new ones, but not at least those ones. The second question was Lean Canvas. So Lean Canvas also was a bit of an accidental discovery. So while I was blogging and, and doing research for the book, one of the things I was looking for was a was a was a more effective way to capture risky assumptions because a lot of our uh, framework is about when you have an idea, don't start with the easiest thing, start with the riskiest thing. And so I actually had a spreadsheet going, and that's how I was ranking my risks. Um, I one day ran into the business model canvas and it was kind of interesting, but I put it away and then one entrepreneur was using it in, in a way to identify, he was changing the canvas and kind of changing the boxes. And I thought that was interesting and I didn't know I could change the business model canvas. And then I saw it was licensed in such a way, creative commons. So do, do, do you remember exactly what he was changing in the canvas and what was the aha moment for you? What, what sparked you and the idea to revamp the, yeah, the whole idea of canvases? Yeah, so his name was Rob Fitzpatrick, and I actually have a blog post in because again I documented everything that I was doing a lot around around those times. And so when I discovered his work, his name was Rob Fitzpatrick. He had gone in and changed um, some of the boxes, which were more for later stage startups. He was trying to make it more practical for for early stage startups, and that's what he did. And I don't remember the exact boxes, but I think if you go to the blog post, you can find a link to his version as well. Um, and then I found that what he did was kind of a step in the right direction. And I took that even further and I said that I still want to change some boxes. And so I added customer problem and solution because that's how I think. Whenever you have an idea, you have to ask yourself who is going to be my customer and what problem do I solve with my solution? So that's how I was thinking at the time. And so I made those changes and I published it in a blog post. And that blog post just had like a lot of, um, you know, comments and it just took off. Like that was one of the most, and even to this day, I think now it's maybe less so, but for a long time, it was the top blog post on the site. Um, so that's what sparked the, the lean canvas as a, you can say as an experiment, as an accidental discovery. And I saw that people were using it and I began to use it more. So I started um, developing it further and that's how it got developed to where it is today and got put into the book, Running Lean kind of mentions it. So when you were asking the order, it's hard to say which came first. It was really the blog, and while I was researching the book, the lead canvas got built. So the funny story there is that in the first edition of the book, I had an example in canvas, and it was on the book itself. Like I have a case study on how I wrote the book using the techniques in the book, and I also have a lead canvas 
Online campus, so it's a bit meta recursive. Yeah, I was I was really curious to know about this because when I was reading the book, you mentioned in, in the book itself, you try to show with a real example use case of link canvas exa- exactly. If I'm not wrong, make yes, correct yes. me. And I was like curious, what, what which which one came first? And uh, that was interesting for me. So um, going more into depth, what is exactly link canvas and what is the difference with the predecessor, which is the, the typical business model uh, canvas? Can, can you walk yeah. us through the differences and how it differentiates itself? Yeah, if I even go, like, I, I, you know, some people who know business model canvas ask the question, what's the difference between the two? But I think the bigger kind of predecessor is the business plan. So traditionally, when we have had an idea, we have been asked to write a business plan. And I start there because the best way to describe a lean canvas is it's almost like a one-page business plan. The problem with business plans is that they take too long to write. And by the time you write it and make up all the stories in it, nobody even reads it. Do you, want th- do, you, do you think, I mean, in schools, especially in business schools, they teach a lot of how to write a business plan. And I think this is so outdated. Why didn't they, they yeah. don't teach something more easier that it's more practical? It's, it's changing. So, so, so there are, I mean, there's still going to be schools that are teaching your traditional and some of it's like your old, old school business school professors who think that's the only thing that one needs to do. But definitely it's changed. Like in the last 10 years since these canvases have come out, um, there's a lot of change. We, we work with a lot of universities that are teaching, even high schools are teaching in canvas to, to early students as a way to capture their ideas. So the power of, of the canvas is that it's, it's the opposite. It's much faster to write and it's a bit like Lego pieces, just like when you're building, you can, you can use Lego to build, you've seen some of these things, and if you go to Lego land or you see these amazing you know, things people can build with Legos, but you can also start with some very simple models. And so that's the power of the canvas, is you can describe a very complex business model, uh, but you can also start very simple. And that's the appeal of it, is that you can start simple and then describe something more complex, while a business plan is just a document that is very old fashioned, It's People don't read it, and even if they do, then they expect it to be, you know, made up of all these perfect analysis, and it's very hard to know that in the early stages of a startup. So to me, that was the 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 the, the original alternative that the lean canvas helps to kind of replace. Is you don't need to do an elaborate business plan. You can start quickly with the lean canvas, and then the big piece here is iteration. Is that every there's no no business model out there or no idea out there that doesn't change by the time it's done. It's like evolution. We we start with version one, but by the time you get to product market fit, usually you build something very different. And so the lean canvas is more of a snapshot than it is trying to build that perfect model. Um, the question you would ask: the difference between lean canvas and business model canvas? There is uh, just more, it's more of a paradigm difference. Like I the way those that are familiar with business model canvas. I find it's more applicable to describe mature existing businesses. So if you have a mature business and you already, you're trying to document what is your business model about, like who are your partners, what are your key activities, what are the resources that you have, you can use that to do it. But when you are in an early stage startup, when you're trying to create magic, something out of nothing, you don't have those things yet. So there, the Lean Canvas is more applicable because it helps you focus in on markets, like who's your customer, what's the unmet need, how do you get to market, and one day when you get all those things, those other things become obvious, like your unfair advantages or your key resources. Um, do, do you think it's easier to start a B2C or a B2B startup, and in which context or 
more broadly, in which industry do you see a better fit to use yeah. Lean Canvases? Right. So, so it, it's, it may not be a very fair question because for the first thing is that every business is hard um, and there are pros and cons. So if I look at a B2C side, on the pro side, the reason that it's appealing is that there are usually a lot more consumers out there. And so testing is a bit easier. If I was doing a B2C startup, I can do you know digital tests. I can put up a landing page, drive traffic, use Facebook, all these things. But on the flip side, the con side is that because it is so easy to do it, everyone's doing it. So there's a lot more competition. If I'm trying to build a B2C product, like you know a new type of a phone or a new type of whatever, an app, a phone app, there's just always so much competition. So you have to still stand out in the noise. On the B2B side, it's the it's the other story, which is if you're going further upstream, maybe not as many customers, but you still have to stand out um, and it's harder to reach those customers. So it's always a function of you know their trade-offs. I don't think that one is necessarily easier than the other, but the business models are, are effectively different. When you're doing B2C, not always, but typically you're trying to get a lot more customers at lower price points. So it's a different kind of scaling game. If you're doing B2B, it usually is hunting for higher priced customers. Um, and the channels are not as, as scalable, so it's more like sales and, and things become more, more, more manual. Mm -hmm. uh, in, your, uh, in your book, Running Lean, uh, you talk about the fact that before uh, reaching product market fit, there are like two stages that uh, needs to be taken into account. Uh, which uh, first, which are problem solution fit and uh, product launch fit. And I think this is so important, but at the same time, so misunderstood by many entrepreneurs and founders. So can you talk more about, about this and what do you mean by problem solution fit and product launch fit? Yeah, so I think most people understand product market fit as the right part of the hockey stick curve where everything is working and we all want to get there. Uh, the problem is that getting there is the very hard part. Um, and so I broke those into those two sub stages so that the, the process can be a bit more systematic. So when you have an idea, problem solution fit is before you even build, you want to make sure that there is a market for that idea. So it, traditionally, way, the way we do this is we build a product, then we try to sell it. And if it doesn't sell, we then try to fix the product. And that takes a lot of time because people usually spend six months to nine months building a product. In problem solution fit, which is the first stage, we tell people don't build anything. First, try to sell your demo. Like go and, and, and show an offer, you know, show a Kickstarter page, show a landing page, go and pitch your customers. If they don't buy your pitch, then they're not going to buy your product. So why build? So that's kind of, it's, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's something that when people hear it, they're like, oh, this is, uh, I never knew I could do that. But it happens all the time. People buy your demo, they don't buy your solution in the beginning. So problem solution fit is all about first proving that there is a big enough market. So you need to not just sell it to one person. If I have a new idea and I come to you and say, will you buy it? And you say, yes, that may be great, but one person's not enough. I need to go and now find 10 other people who might say the same thing. And then maybe it's not 10, maybe it's a hundred. So those numbers will come from, again, the, the pricing and your goals and the kind of product you're building. Uh, to make that concrete, the book that I wrote, um, I, I, decided I was going to write this book, but I didn't start writing it until I got some commitments first. So I put up a landing page and my goal was I needed to get 1000 email addresses because that would convince me that if I wrote this book, some of, some percentage of those would buy and that would be worth doing. I had built too many products. One of my mantras is life's too short to build something nobody wants. And I love it. 
<laughs> yeah. So, so, so that's this whole problem solution fit is make sure that when you build some, when you build it, people will buy it. So why don't you sell it before you build? So that's problem solution fit. And then before getting to product market fit, there's a second stage, which is getting your product ready for learning. Um, because again, when we, we people will often have do some research and understand their customers and market, and then they launch the product and have no way of measuring, like if it's working, if it's not working, and they only count revenue. They only count, you know, how much money they're making. And when the money doesn't come, then you don't know what's working or not working. So in the lean startup and a lot of running lean, there's a very big emphasis on metrics. And so product launch fit is getting ready for that, like building the infrastructure. And so maybe a good example could be even Tesla. Like when you look at Tesla, the way they build their cars, very different from any other car company. They sell you their car and then they use software to improve the car and they're mm -hmm. adding features, but they're also dates. measuring a lot of data. So that piece there, they, they spend extra time to build that infrastructure and that's what product launch fit is to some extent. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I, I recognize some, uh, some parts of what you're saying and uh, I think, uh, I'm not sure, maybe it's Paul Graham that talks about pre uh, product market fit, you have to do a lot of things that don't scale. Mainly you have to do those things manually. And yeah. uh, to some extent, uh, I can take into account, when I think about this, I think about how we in our site uh, found our first users. So first we are, uh, our startup, we were targeting uh, students in China trying to learn Chinese, but by talking with them, doing demos and trying, making them to use the app and taking those feedback, what we notice is that actually that's not our target users because we don't solve a problem and it's an, an urgent problem for them and what we did was pivoted towards professionals not anymore students that work in, in china don't have time to go to to school so we offer a, a solution that was uh, more time efficient and result oriented and more efficient yeah. and this is so important but many 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 uh, founders have a hard time to go outside and do those do those things that don't scale, such as talking with your customers, trying to understand what is the problem. And at, at some point, it's different, even difficult to dissect the, the your idea from the problem that you try to solve because the problem could be totally different than what's your 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 solution that you're trying to build, or the other way around. And this is so misunderstood, and I, I see it over and over, especially for first-time entrepreneurs. But I guess, as, as you mentioned, everyone has to go through the pain of learning this. And, and it's, it's, it's a mindset shift. So I, I even started giving it a name. I call it the innovator's bias or the entrepreneur's bias for their solution. And that is that when we see an idea, we quickly think of a solution and fall in love with it. And then we everything is a bias lens. So whenever we see, it's the hammer problem. If you already decided you want to build a hammer, then every, everywhere you look, you see nails, right? Everything looks like a nail to you and you try to fit it into your story. And that's just how we humans work. If the way we evolve is we have biases. It's all kinds of biases you can read about on the web. <laughs> right. but, but to be successful, yes, as an entrepreneur, if you want to build what customers want, not what you want, then you have to see the world from their eyes. And that's a mindset shift that takes time to develop, but it, it, it happens. People will, will get there. Is, is there like a, a faster way to get rid of those biases? Like, how, how do you do it? It's, it's almost, I think so, it's impossible. I, I think with, so I think with coaching, I think there isn't. So this is where, well, the, 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 so for people to, to change, there has to be a trigger, right? So some of the triggers are 
um, are intrinsic. So you might launch a product and as we said, we all expect it to work. But so if I go and talk to somebody when they just launched, they're going to be like, I don't want to talk to you because your stuff is probably going to fail. I'm not going to fail. Um, <laughs> but you wait two months, you wait three months, and then they'll be willing to talk to you because it's like, okay, what I'm doing is not working. Can you help in helping me get in the right track? So there's going to be a trigger and that's a triggering mm -hmm. event when we begin to realize that statistics applies to everyone. Probability, that's another bias, probability bias. We all think that bad things happen to others and they won't happen to us. And right. those on the other spectrum, you know, they're fear people are afraid of flying, even though flying is safer than driving, but that's another example of those probability biases. Um, so there, again, that's another kind of a bias. But so there's but where that can be accelerated is also through coaching. Um, we have over the years built up a platform where we bring startups in. And we start them up with their ideas, but slowly through coaching, we can ask certain questions which start to change their mindsets. Um, and it's like a simple thing, like, you know, you were building this product for nine months, you have a demo, why don't we start with that? Why don't we sell your demo first? And it makes sense, so they go and try it, and when it doesn't work, they begin to ask questions, which is if people didn't buy my demo, they wouldn't buy my product, I need to fix this. So you can create those learning moments, but it does take some, some coaching and effort. Right. Um, going back or going more broadly on the macro level, there is like two main stages in a, in a startup, in the lifetime of a startup. And one we, we mentioned about is pre-product market fit and the other is post-product market fit. And those two changes are really, really different in terms of metrics, in terms of a job that has to be done and many other things. What are the early metrics that the founders sh founders should be should pay attention uh, uh, special attention especially pre and post uh yeah. product market fit do you have any that you think yeah, are the best one we should pay right. attention to so so i guess from from a from a metric standpoint i still like to believe as long as the business model doesn't change the true north metric the traction metric does not change so if we look at even a company like facebook what they were tracking when when Mark Zuckerberg was in the college dorm room, you know, daily active users and, and, and click-through rates is still what they're tracking today on the core business model. So the metrics don't change, the scale changes, but definitely the focus of the entrepreneurs change. So what they're doing changes a lot. So pre-product market fit, it's a lot about learning. You're changing the product because you don't, it's just like in your example, you, you start with idea number one, you pivot, you're changing the product because you're trying to make that metric kind of go up and to the right. Um, and it may be not the product you start with, but something else. So there's a lot of learning. So learning is essentially the insights that you learn help you build a different product which can make those metrics work. Post-product market fit, the goal is more on scaling. So it's less about product innovation. You're not trying to build new things, even though we are always improving the product, but it's less about new value proposition and more about scalability. So it's more about engines of growth, channels, um, those types of things. You mentioned the example of Facebook. They the the true north star metric is daily active users. So it's obviously because their business model is based on uh, more customers, more people they have on the website. Better it is because more ad, more ads they will sell. But it's not sometimes it's not so easy to ad identify what is your true north star metric. Is there a formula or? Is there a way to easily identify? Because I remember in our case, was 
basically in our platform users will go there we'll have a lesson with the teacher and then the content the language content thought will be captured by our ai system processed and they'll have to go back and review to learn the language uh, so it's like a almost two-stage uh, product and it was not how many students will will uh, will go and review the content but how many well, it was not how many students will do the lesson with the teacher, but how many students will go back and review the content and then re rebook a lesson. So it was very hard for us to understand which metric should we look at and optimize for. Is there a solution to identify the North Star metric? Well, so what, what you're talking about is a bit more of the leading indicator, like we call it, so that would be more of like the aha metrics or the aha moments, like right. which ones cause the true North. But to me, the true North is obvious. Like what, I, from what I understand of your business model, it's a, it's a marketplace model. Um, so you've got maybe students and instructors, and there's some some transaction that's happening. So usually in marketplace models, the number of transactions is really the initial metric to be looking at. So if I look at Airbnb, at the end of the day, if they have more guest nights booked this quarter versus last quarter, as an investor, I'm happy because I know that their business is growing. Now, what I don't know is what. How do they make more? How do they grow more? How, what is causing that? That's the that's the, the big, you know, sometimes billion dollar question, which is doing that kind of analysis. It's not an easy answer because it will be many inputs. Like Facebook, for example, even though I say it was driving traffic, what they found is that the number of friends people created in the first 10 days was was very was very important because that correlated with a lot of engagement. So if you came on Facebook and you got 10 friends in 10 days, your engagement was two, three times as higher than the other person who may have less than 10 friends. So they optimized for that. So when you when you would launch on when you would sign up on Facebook before, you would have a blank screen and then you would sign up and you'd be there by yourself and you start friending a few people. Now they recommend friends. Uh, I, mean, I think most people are already on there, but if you sign up today, they know who your friends are before you even tell them, and so they start recommending people to you. And so that was a way of optimizing for a, 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 a user behavior that led to their traction metric, which was more engagement. So, yeah. so that's why so there are kind of two flips. So to me, the traction metric doesn't change, but what's causing it, that is like the big question. That's where a lot of experimentation needs to get done to try to understand what what's making that thing go up. Yeah, Facebook obviously they leverage also the fact of network effects. More of my friends are on the platform, more I'll benefit, more they'll benefit themselves. So yeah, so I guess uh, you have to, what the message here is, do you have to watch closely and tightly what kind of business model do you have? And based on that, analyze what could be the possible metrics you should look at. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And the business model can change. So I think also in your story, I heard you mention AI. I, I bring yeah, it changed, it, changed, it changed over time. And, and, and I bring that up because you know, AI takes time because AI has to be fed, there needs to be a lot of data points. And so your initial business model cannot be a big data play because you don't have data yet. It has to be something more around, something more basic, like I want to learn language. Um, and it might be using human-to-human -human interactions to, to start the business model. And someday down the road in your stage two or stage three, you say, we don't need the instructors because our AI can, can do that, right? So mm -hmm. that's a, a second version of your, your that, that That was actually our assumption. So we, we thought we build a, a, 
a platform where a teacher can create content and then students will find that content and learn. But actually, we by doing experiments, what we found interesting is that um, students don't want generic content. They want personalized content, language content, right? So especially if your your language level is higher, you want to personalize more and more your uh, your knowledge, like a pyramid. And what? But the question was like, we don't have a very powerful engine to create content, uh, AI engine to create content for each student, but we can leverage the teachers. So teacher can do an online teach a lesson with the students, and then the system will process all the sentences and words that are thought, and then uh, basically the data and create this personalized uh, content. And that was hard to uh, hard to test because it involved different um, different players, different stakeholders. We have to find teachers, then we have to make sure that time uh, slots are open. Like, and those are like some of early things or uh, that we did, which didn't scale at the time. Obviously we engineered the process um, and, and it's really important for us to get the users to the aha moment because there is no product like where you have a lesson with a teacher, but then the content is in the app. And then you can review it anytime, everywhere, whenever you want on your phone. And um, yeah, going back to um, to our conversation, um, the, the, what are the the three most uh, recurrent uh, reasons that most product fail? And and more broadly, as a founder and entrepreneur, what is your take in, of uh, on failure in general? Yeah, yeah. So I. So I, I do think it's a two-part question, but, but the it reason is. that most products fail, like to me, it comes down to one thing, which is we just build the wrong product. Um, and then we can get into many root causes. But part of it is some of the things I talked about is we fall in love for too long with a particular solution and we waste needless time and effort building something that is eventually going to fail. And then it only takes, only when it fails and we, we are ready to accept that, we start iterating and pivoting and, and testing. So that's why, like, what we all we try to teach is, let's not find, let's not build the product even. Let's find the riskiest thing. Let's actually try to make it fail as quickly as possible, so we can get on the right track faster. Um, so I'd rather get the bad news in in five days than five months. So if I know that a customer is not going to pay a thousand dollars for my product, let me test price today and tell them, you know, here's the demo. Will you buy it for a thousand dollars? If they say no, you're crazy. I know that. Okay, I have a problem. I can go ahead and try to fix that or pivot away from that. Yeah, sometimes they sometimes they even may not respond to your uh, proposal. They yeah. just disappear like this, fade away. Yeah. And that's actually yeah. uh, it's a good indicator for you to say, to to ask yourself how urgent is this problem for this person that I'm trying to solve. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And, and, and this is where like that kind of objectivity is so important because people tell me people won't buy my product now because it's not right. And that is you lying to yourself because they may not buy it, but they will at least commit to buying, right? So they may not give you money because it's not ready, but they can say, I love it. They can give you a letter of intent. They can sometimes pre-order, you know, they can do all those kinds of things. So this happened to me, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, but people, it's so easy to say, you know, I'm not, I'm just going to wait because you don't want to be rejected. But that's why we have to push that up front. But to your point of failure, you know, if you think, but whenever I ask entrepreneurs, do you want... Like, do you think you're you're doing something that needs to be breakthrough to win? And everyone says yes, because if I don't do something breakthrough, then there's so much competition, I'm not going to stand up. And then I ask them, you know, what does breakthrough mean? You know, is it based on something that you, you know is going to happen or something that you don't know is going to happen? If you look at the dictionary definition of breakthrough, 
it requires some kind of unexpected discovery, some insight that you uncover that nobody else uncovered. You can't do that without failure. You can't do that without trying something and it not working because that's where the insight is hidden. So it's, it's a bit counterintuitive, but when people see failure, they run away from it because that's we're, we're wired to do that. It's our human condition. But as an entrepreneur, you should run towards failure in the early stages because that's where everyone else, when they hit the failure, they turn around and leave. But that's where you find something truly interesting and amazing. Uh, so, I mean, there are many startups. You look at Airbnb, you know, they started out doing something very risky. Every investor told them their idea was dumb and never worked. Because how can you rent a stranger's room when the stranger is living in, on the, in the other room that's next crazy. to you? And vice versa. That just sounds so weird. And so, you know, do they even wash their sheets? You know, what's going on? And now, you know, billion dollar company. So everyone, very, very smart people told them to get out of that business. It would never work. Um, but they found a way to make it work anyways. So to me, that's, that's the nature of those ideas is they require breakthrough insights and they require those kinds of failures coming along the way. The trick is doing it very quickly. So if you are waiting six months at a time and failing, those are like big emotional failures that are very hard to recover from. But if you're running experiments, which is what the language we use with Mean Startup, and you are running two-week experiments and failing, you know, it's not fun, but it's less about failing and more about learning. So you can you can change that. Yeah, it's it's not fun at all. At all. I mean, the, around the the idea of failure, there is two opposite ideas actually. One is, as you mentioned, you have to fail quick as as much as possible. But on on the other side, there is uh, the fun, the the author of Zero to One, Peter Thiel, which says you have failure in general is a tragedy. You have to avoid it as as much as possible. And there is this discussion, which is the counter uh, counterintuitive argument, and which make me thought a lot about it. And I wanted to have you to pick your brain on this. Um, you mentioned, as rightly mentioned before, life is too short to build something that nobody wants, which is totally right. Um, but it is what I want to ask: Is it a good uh, idea to even start and build something? given the down market that we are living, experiencing right now? Well, so I guess the first thing I would say that we, what, what we try to do is don't build first. So maybe I'll just correct that, is that you can definitely test for something um, before you build. So in any market, good or bad, I wouldn't want to build something before I know that it's worth doing. And this, is, this goes back to the idea of time is the scarcest resource. Every entrepreneur, when we are younger, we feel like, we have got a lot of time, but you start working on a startup and two or three startups later, you're 10 years older, and then the value of time becomes, you know, you start to appreciate it. So to me, time is the thing that, that founders invest in. Investors invest with money, but the, the thing with money is that money is not as expensive as time because you can print more money, you can get more money, you cannot get more time. So that's how I try to look at it, is that you have to kind of value your time in the ideas, so you have to do that. But your point about the down economy, the way the way one should look at it is that whenever there is crisis, whenever there is you know a down economy, there's generally a lot more opportunity as well. Um, they two go hand in hand. You mentioned I think there's even a Chinese word. I don't know the actual word. I can never pronounce it, but it basically is a word for crisis and opportunity, and it's a dual meaning. meaning right. Word. Uh, yeah, yeah. But but, I, but 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 that is but that is essentially um, the way to look at it. And if you actually people don't realize, I did a little. 
uh, email list to my 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 uh, audience, kind of pointing them to this article. But companies like um, you know Apple, Microsoft, GE, GM, um, many well-known companies, even Uber, uh, and uh, there are a few others in that in that group, were all founded in down recessions and like really bad markets. Um, and they were founded founded there because that's where they could really shine. That's where they found an opportunity when everyone was trying to maybe go into survival mode, they were trying something new and different, and they got a lot more attention, a lot more traction, were able to grow in those markets. So there's actually a very, very strong correlation between successful startups that we see and also the environment in which those ideas were incubated. Um, there's, there's a strong correlation there. Yeah, um, yeah, going back to the Chinese word, I think it's Weiji, which it's yeah, uh, yeah. word can be divided in, in, in the translation. Or the um, the pini yeah the pini is weiji, and uh, it it's a word that has as you mentioned uh, signifies danger but also opportunity respectively. Um, I wanted to ask, do you think which or which company or startup do you think has fully embraced the lean startup, continuous innovation, continuous experimentation methodology despite the the scale? If we look yeah, at the big yeah. companies that we could not ca call them anymore startups at yeah, this yeah. point. So, yeah, so, so the examples I give are even pre-lean startups. A lot of people look for kind of the, the, the startups, but you find that many methodologies like continuous innovation or lean startup really codify, really make, make the principles known to a bigger audience, but there are companies who are practicing this kind of in their own way. So if I go back, if I look at a company like Facebook or even Amazon, Uh, Amazon was founded in 1994, Facebook in 2004, way before we were talking about these things. But right from the very beginning, they were using words like experiment and let's you know do a lot of iterations and let's try a lot of things. Um, so the principles were there. Today we are practicing it with with a, with a stronger vocabulary. We've learned a lot of techniques. We've cataloged them, so more people it's more accessible. But I would say that the principles have been around for a long. Um, so those would be like examples of companies at scale, but all those companies, any, any company who is embracing fast feedback loops from, from customers, both qualitative and quantitative, to me gets into this mindset of, of continuous innovation. They're using customer learning to fuel their, their decisions versus um, the traditional, like I build it, people will, you know, they will come type of mindset. Yeah, so those companies have to some degree Uh, this mentality in their DNA, whereas uh, other companies who have been in the in the game for longer, it's kind of uh, it's harder to inject this kind of mentality and this kind of approach, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. So, and, and part of it is just habits, right? So, this is where more recently I've been studying a lot of like habit, reading a lot of books and habit habit creation and habit loops and things, but. At the end of the day, the culture of the company determines how it's like evolution. You know, if you if you're a dinosaur, using that literal analogy, it's very hard to change. It doesn't mean you can't change, um, but it's harder. Um, so bigger companies have that culture legacy that's hard hard to adjust. But you can find evidence of them in smaller pockets, like they have innovation teams, and even within big companies, you're going to find the antibodies or or, or, or the, or the, the maybe the, the mutants who are entrepreneurs inside a big organization 
um, and they still do amazing things. So you'll find those kinds of things. It's just not mainstream culture. So it's harder to change right. the so-called entrepreneurs that are ready there and they just need to be shown the right path. Um, I think I want to ask you, let's say wrap, wrap, wrap it up. And I want to ask, what is the hardest thing that you had to do as a founder? Oh, I, I don't know where I start, but I, 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 I think the hardest thing, usually as, as founders, especially if you think of the idea creation phase, it usually starts with one person. And if you are the, the solo founder doing it, um, it's probably a hard time because on the one hand, you're very excited. And on the other side, you're very lonely as well. Like you don't really have maybe a team to, with which to share it. Um, and when you go and start sharing the idea with others, they may not understand it. You know, They may not get it. So that can be very frustrating. So I, maybe, I find that that to me is still... You know, getting people to see what you see can be the most exciting and frustrating thing for, for a founder to, to go through. Um, and then once you can start people to get on board, then it becomes a lot of fun. But there are many, many solo founders that I work with, you know, struggle with that. And I can, I can have a lot of appreciation for that, that challenge. It's, it's definitely a hard thing. Um, and that's kind of getting going. There are, of course, all kinds of challenges along the way, like, you know, feeding, you know, get, you're basically getting revenue, selling. Um, there are all kinds of ups and downs that we all know are, are par for the course in the entrepreneurial journey. Ash, that's uh, so insightful. I think also you, 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 you have, where as, as long as you have an idea, uh, try to put it out there and, and, and find the right people to poke on your idea and find holes and, from, and give you perspective from a, a, from a different angle what may not work on it. Yeah, well, it, it, I guess it, it, it just goes back to sharing. So if, if ideas are best when they're shared, you don't have to share. People, founders get too scared about sharing their secret sauce. And the thing is, most people don't care how your idea works. They want to know what your idea does. So if you focus on that piece, you can share your idea very openly. So I can come to you and I can say I can I can teach you I can teach you Chinese in, in 30 days. That's that's what I want to share with you. How I'm not going to tell you, but that's the secret sauce. But I'll share the, the idea with you, and if you like it, come and be a customer. Come and use my product. That you should be sharing, and you can get lots of conversations around. That. Is there like a, I'm not even call it methodology, but uh, a way to generate new ideas continuously, like for a business? It could be for anything. Do you have any? I'd say. Yeah, yeah that's out of my um, core core expertise. I, I actually come into play when, when you have the idea. I'm, I'm more the person that can tell you how to test whether it's good or bad very quickly. But how you, and I, will, I also, because there are people who have like methodologies, which is you can take, look at analogs, you can look at markets, you can find trends, you can do all these things. And there is stuff out there. Um, I'm less interested in the idea generation. So how it happens, you know, there are many ways. And sometimes it's just you're in the shower or you're driving in the highway and boom, you get an idea. <laughs> Um, I'm more interested in, in how, how do you, what you do afterwards in the testing phase. Um, and I found many ideas that just came out like in a dream and they became like very, very successful because somehow they just enter someone's mind. Others take more research and, and analysis. So, yeah. so, yeah. And um, I remember I was reading some uh, of your blog and as you mentioned, one of the reasons that many startups fail is that they actually don't even start or don't even try to execute on on the ideas, so basically they are dead ideas to some degree. And I found that, wow, that's actually one, that's a good reason. 
Um, what are you currently working on and uh, where can people find more about you and uh, your, uh, your books? Because you, you have a second one, I think it's called yeah, there's, there's Scaling, Lean. Scaling Lean. And, and, tech, and technically a third one in the work. So, the, so this has been a body of work. It started almost 10 years ago. Running Lean was the first book um, where I introduced some ideas, which then created more problems. And then I wrote the second book to answer some of those problems or questions which created yet more problems. So, so I think with the third one, I feel like I've created um, a, a, a three-part kind of trilogy with the framework to where I can now better be able to, to guide some of the teams from ideation to that product market fit stage. And so we took that learning and we have turned it into a platform. So we run LeanStack. So LeanStack is the company that I run, but we have a lot of that content also available online. Um, so what I'm working on these days is scaling that. So we look at the framework using the language that we were using earlier has hit product market fit. It's less about new new canvases or new ways of doing things, more about now engines of growth. So we are working a lot on partnering. We're working a lot on finding scalable channels, You know, whether it's direct to the entrepreneur or using paths like accelerators or corporates. Uh, but those are the like, areas where we are focused on. It's really, really scaling our our thinking and our tools um, more than trying to improve them at this point. Are you planning to move uh, to Europe? Since you mentioned you're planning to work with accelerators, or in uh, China to some degree. No, no. Because so, so I, I think the amazing thing is that, and, and now even more so with this pandemic crisis upon us, is that we, people are being forced to move virtual. We have been a virtual. I think you're a virtual company. We were talking about before we started. I've been virtual for almost 15, 20 years as well. Like all the startups I've done have, have run this way. So I find that I don't need to move anywhere. I mean, you, we're, you're in Italy, I'm in Austin, we're talking video, we can see each other. So yeah, I, I feel that one doesn't need to move anywhere these days. You can do what you need to from, from wherever you are as long as you have the internet. So we can end uh, our podcast on this note. Ash, Moria, thank you for joining the Founders Club podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome.